you would turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, we're going to pick up that book at the end of chapter 3 this morning, verse 19, and we'll move through into the first part of 4. So if you want to be locating that on your, in your Bibles or on your phones, if that's how you, uh, how you access the scriptures. Also, let me encourage you, if you have these cards, feel free to follow along here. Everything we're going to teach through this morning is on the front of these cards. If you didn't get one, you can pop your hand up. I know Ron, the, the usher, was happy to bring some around. If you'd like one, feel free to pop your hand up and he can bring one by. Um, just a, a quick heads up. The next two Sundays, um, I will not be up here teaching and preaching. Um, next Sunday, Lord willing, our team uh, that's headed to the Dominican Republic will be in uh, Santo Domingo, the capital, and getting ready uh, around this time of day to head out to Guazamita, the village that we are partnering with. Um, so next Sunday, you'll be hearing from Pete. Pete's preparing the message. Um, the following Sunday, hopefully, I'll have just, our team will have just arrived back from the Dominican. So I'm hoping, hoping to be with you for worship that Sunday. Um, but we've actually invited uh, a friend of ours that we've just met uh, over the summer. His name is Liu Bing. He is a Chinese pastor and uh, scholar of the scriptures. Um, someone with a deep heart for the global church. And um, I'm excited for him to come and share God's word with you um, two Sundays from now. So just, just a heads up what to expect the next two Sundays. This morning, though, we're uh, in 1 John chapter 3. And, and we're thinking, again, the context of 1 John 3 is, is really all about what it means to be the children of God. And in this particular section today, John is going to be addressing how we separate what's true about that identity from what's not true. Fact from fiction or truth from lies. So we're going to kind of look at at how he communicates that in two different parts today. Many of you have probably played a, a party game called Two Truths and a Lie. If you've not played the game before, the the way it works is usually when you're in a a group of people, maybe it's a a group of people that don't all know each other well, you pick somebody out, and that person makes three statements about themselves. Two of those statements are true, and one of them is designed to be a a falsehood, to trip you up. So there are two truths and one lie. So for example, if we were playing this morning, I could make these three statements could say, Katie and I have lived and worked in China and Canada before we moved to Vermont. Statement number one. Statement number two, before Katie and I met each other, we both attended Christian colleges in Ohio and New York. Statement number two. Statement number three, all three of our children, Josie, Asher, and Eliza, were born outside the United States. So I'm going to give you 10 seconds, turn to the person next to you, and see if you can pick out which one is the lie. Number one, number two, number three. Keep your answers to yourself. Don't don't give them away. You got five seconds. All right. How many of you guessed number one, number two, number three? All right. We tripped up a few people. Number two is the falsehood. So Katie and I did both attend Christian colleges, but they were in Indiana and Illinois, even though both of us are from Ohio and New York. That's where we grew up. 
If you, if you play a game like Two Truths and a Lie, there are a few ways you might seek to gain an advantage, right? To be a, a better player. Number one, you might try to detect, you know, any change in, in tone of voice or facial expressions as the, the person makes each statement. Maybe you pick up on some slight nuance, some intuition you get. Or maybe you take each statement and you look at the details really closely and, and is there just one or two words that maybe got switched that make one statement true or one statement false. But probably far and away the greatest advantage you could have in this game is to actually know the person making the statements, right? To have a personal connection with them and with their story, with who they are, what they're like, where they've been, what they're about. Right? That way, your, your attempt to play this game is not just based on your intuitions or your assumptions, but based on something you actually know about that person. And as is evidenced this morning, many of you, probably because you've heard Katie and I talk about our stories, were able to pick out which statements were true and which one was not. As we are endeavoring to follow Jesus together as a, as a body, as a group of his disciples, we are liable to encounter many different ideas. And I hope and pray that the vast, the overwhelming majority of those ideas that you encounter here are true. They speak truthfully about who Jesus is. They speak truthfully about who you are as his followers. But inevitably, right, there are deceptions. There are little changes, little twists on what is true that come our way and that trip us up. Maybe that's a distortion about who Jesus Christ is. Maybe it's a distortion about who you are or what you believe about yourself as his child. And it's imperative for us to learn how to embrace what's true, but also to resist messages and voices that are untrue. And so as we look at the end of chapter 3 today and the beginning of 4, John wants to, to give us some help in spotting truth, but also discerning where there are distortions of it. And I think his point in this is that far and away the most valuable resource we have, the greatest advantage we have in discerning truth from falsehood, is our personal connection with the truth, with the spirit, with the person of Jesus Christ. That if, if we can keep returning to him, John says, we, we have this guide that will help us make those decisions. Let me pray for us as we look at 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 19. Lord Jesus, you told your disciples that if we are ever in doubt or, or restless or stirred in our hearts and spirits to be anxious, that we can know that we have a home in you, and that if we're not sure even the, the way to get there, where you're leading or where you are, we say that you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. And we just need to know you. Lord Jesus, I pray that as this is your word given to your people, may the words of my mouth as I preach through it, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. 
Lord Jesus, it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Again, I want you to remember that the, the context that this whole chapter is really on about is, is asking the question, who are God's children? So hear these verses accordingly. Verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and God knows everything. He knows everything about us. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, then we have confidence before God and we receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and we do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he lives in them. Again, this is, this is all about what it means to be God's children, and it's about how God's children learn to, to figure out what's true and what's false. And usually when we think about truth and, and falsehood, we, we often think about it as a, a rational kind of endeavor, right? What we believe with our minds, and that certainly is an important part of how what's true. And John actually is going to address more that, that rational belief, side of belief in chapter 4. But here in these verses, John is concerned primarily with a, a kind of another dimension of knowing truth. And he speaks about knowing truth in our hearts, right? believing truth with our heart. Are we true-hearted or false-hearted? question, again, throughout this, this chapter is about being children of God. And so, so John is saying, do you, do you at a heart level, does your heart understand what it means to have God as your father? Does your heart, let me ask you, does your heart understand what it means to have God as your father? That's what's in view here. And I don't know what it's like for you in your relationship with God, but many of the, the people I've talked to over the 20-something years I've been trying to follow Jesus, one of, one of the most universal, it seems, human experiences when we think about relating to God, when we think about being in the presence of God, when we think about God as, as a God who's holy, a God who's righteous, a God who's perfect, there is a, a pretty frequent sense in which as we stand in the presence we don't feel good about ourselves. We don't, we don't measure up. We see our inadequacies. That there is an anxiety about that relationship for many of us. Right? When you think about God seeing all of who you are, seeing all of your insecurities, seeing all of maybe your shortcomings, seeing every action you've done, every word you've spoken, every thought that's been in your mind or heart, all your rough edges... Right? John says in 19, he knows that there's a pretty good chance that that might make us feel restless in God's presence. As verse 20 puts it, we can frequently have the experience of our hearts condemning us. 
in God's presence. I've been following Jesus for, for 20 plus years and I still have this experience, right? After I have a, a fight with my spouse or have a, a hard day at work or someone says something or I say something or I do something or I have a rough go with a family member, right? How many of you have ever heard your own heart say to you, you, you can't be at rest in the presence of God, right? You are not loving enough, you're not giving enough, you're not patient enough. Your heart says to you, you've got a long way to go before you can receive God's approval as his child. Right? I, don't, I don't know if you experience those thoughts. For me, a lot of times it comes like at 2 a.m. in the morning, I'll wake up, I'm thinking about the day that just passed or the day that's about to come, and some, pop, some, some thought pops in my head about something that needs my attention or something I've left undone or something that didn't go the way I wanted it to go. And it, and it can feel like this voice rising up to, to condemn, to say, Dave, you don't measure up. You're not enough. Pete and I were talking this week about our experience reading the book of 1 John and how for many of us, and I've talked to some of you about this, 1 John can be so clear in it, it's sort of laying out, this is what a Christian ought to do. This is how a Christian, a follower of Jesus ought to love. This is how a, a Christian ought to confess their sin. All of these things, and it can feel like the bar's way up here, and I don't measure up. It can feel like I'm I'm just encountering my own inadequacy as a follower of Jesus. And if that's, if that's an experience that you sometimes or often have, John wants to tell our hearts the truth here. He wants us to be able to discern what's true and what's not true about that voice we hear that condemns. Verse 20 well, verse 19, he says, I want, I want your hearts to be at rest, set at rest in God's presence. And in verse 20, he says, when your hearts rise up to condemn you, here's what I want you to know. God is greater than your heart in that moment. And particularly, he says, God's knowledge is greater than your own self-knowledge in that moment. God actually knows everything about you. And here's what John is saying. He does not condemn you. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you're abiding in him, if you're trusting in him, if you're seeking to belong to him, God does not condemn you as your heart condemns you. God knows the good, he knows the bad, he knows the ugly, he knows the imperfect, he knows the, the maturing but yet immature parts of you. And what, what John says throughout this book and throughout his gospel is that Jesus Christ came into the world. The gospel that he's been proclaiming from the beginning is not that God is some tiger parent consumed with every mistake you make so that he can get in there and tell you what to do that second, fix you all up. The overwhelming message of the gospel is that God has come to say, I love you. I want you to be my son or my daughter. 
And John has just said in the verses before these, God loved us so much that he laid down his own life in the person of Jesus to show us that love. Jesus laid down his life so that our restless and self-condemning hearts can be told, be quiet, listen to the voice of God the Father who says, I love you. I don't speak about my children like that. John goes on to say here in verses 21 and 22 that in addition to being at rest in the presence of God, he wants us to to know what it's like to come before God as a father with the confidence of a child who knows the love of that father. That we can come to, to the father and ask for help. Ask the father for forgiveness. Ask the father for for help to love our brother or sister. Ask the Father for insight how to bless a brother or sister. Ask for perseverance or encouragement or hope. John says, if your heart is set on the truth of God's love for you, you can be confident that he will do everything he can to help you grow as his child. All right, Jesus says this in the Gospels. All right, he says, what's your experience like as a parent? When, you're, when your children come to you and they say, can we have some bread, do you give them stones? No. If, you're, if your child says, can I have some fish, do you give them snakes? And Jesus says, if, if you in your limited wisdom know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does God the Father seek to give the gifts his children need to them? John wants us to have a clear picture of what it means to have God as our Father. And so instead of being filled with all of these anxieties and concerns about, am I measuring up? Am I doing everything I'm supposed to perfectly? Instead of having a thousand commands in front of us to measure up to, John says, let me make it easy for you. Let me bring it back to one command. Verse 23. This is the command of our Father. Believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Trust that Jesus is love, love personified. Believe that his blood covers you, purifies you, cleanses you, addresses your sense of inadequacy. Believe that as God's son, he has come to make you a full participant in his kind of sonship in which there is no condemnation. There is no rejection. There is no separation. John's saying, the command of our Father is this. Train your voice to listen to Jesus' voice. Sorry, train your hearts to listen to Jesus' voice. Live in such a way that the love of Jesus for you becomes the love of Jesus through you, so that you keep the backside of that command. Believe on the name of Jesus' Son, his love for you, so that you may love one another as he has loved you. Do that, verse 24 says, and you will find that you are living in God and God is living in you. You are in fellowship with one another. A true-hearted child 
at rest with his true-hearted father. True-hearted daughter at rest with her true-hearted father. And so as those who, who are called and commanded to trust and believe in the name of Jesus the Son, John goes on to remind us that, that we also have this additional guide, this additional filter to sort out truth from falsehood. And he points us to the spirit of Jesus living in us. Look at the, the last part of 324 and then into chapter 4. He goes on to say, this, this last section was, was how we know we belong to him. Now he says, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know that he lives in us by the spirit he gave us. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is even now already in the world. Oh, looks like I got to jump ahead here. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Again, the, the question, the concern is true or false? What are we believing? The first part we just looked at is, is about our own beliefs, right? Our, our hearts, what our hearts are telling us about ourselves in God's presence. Now John is, is turning to voices outside of us and, and asking us, whose witness, whose testimony are we believing to, to know what's true? Let me back it up here. Sorry, I got my slides. Got my slides all tripped up. There we go. Who are we believing to tell us what's true? And particularly, again, what John has in view is, who are you believing to tell you what's true about you, about who you belong to, about your identity as God's children? Before we moved to Vermont, Katie and I lived in the city of Shanghai. And if you've ever been to any Chinese city, you'll know they're enormous. Shanghai is arguably the world's largest city now. There are upwards of 24 million people who live in Shanghai. And so if you go anywhere in Shanghai, there's people everywhere, there's kind of chaos everywhere. And so with three young children, we decided at one point we were going to have these dog tags printed up. And they had our physical address, they had our cell phone number, they had, I don't know, maybe even the kid's passport number. Basically, information about who this child was, and particularly whose they were, right? Who did they belong to? So that if we were ever out in a market or on the street and somehow they, they got lost or separated from us, there would be this information on their person to identify them. 
right? These dog tags told the world who our kids belong to. And thankfully, that never happened, right? We, ne- we never lost them in the city, for which I'm grateful. John's overarching goal, again, in this letter is to say to us, this is who you belong to. This is how you answer that question. And he says that, that identifying mark, we don't have dog tags, but, but we have the, the revealed truth of Jesus Christ. We can, we can look and see what his sonship is like. But then, because he was anointed and filled with God's spirit, when we believe in him, his spirit comes to live in us, and that spirit marks us. It identifies us. It says, this is who you belong to. This is who your father is. This is how to contact him. But verse 1 goes on to warn us that even though we have the spirit living in us and testifying to this truth, there are actually many spirits in our world. And here I I think John is referring to to a spirit kind of in a broad sense as as a source of testimony, as a voice that that is saying or proclaiming some version of the truth or, or truth in quotes. And John says we have to be careful because not every spirit that's gone out into the world, not every person testifying to what is true is actually speaking truth. And so in verses 2 and 3, John gives us a litmus test to know what, what voice, what spirit should you receive as truth. The first part of that litmus test, he says, does that spirit acknowledge Jesus is the Christ? Does it acknowledge that Jesus is the anointed, the chosen son of God, the representative of God sent into the world? And secondly, does it acknowledge that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that he was also fully human in that anointed role, in his role as Savior and Redeemer and Messiah. And John says if if the answer to both of those questions is yes, then there's there's a very high chance that, that that is a spirit of God speaking to you. You can trust that voice if it acknowledges who Jesus is in his fullness. But he says if it denies that, if it doesn't speak that truth, then you are taking your cues from a false spirit, what he calls the spirit of the Antichrist, the one who is set against Jesus' Christness, anointedness. And so let me stop there for a second and, and ask you, why is it so important that we believe these two things about Jesus? Why does it matter that Jesus is the Christ? Why does it matter that he came in the flesh? To me, I think the reason they matter is, is one, because they're about who Jesus is. We need an accurate picture, a full picture of his identity. But we need a full picture of who Jesus is because that relates to the gospel. It relates to, to what Jesus has done for us. And it's intimately bound up with who we are. If we lose the truth of who Jesus is, we lose the truth of who we are. If we lose Jesus, we lose ourselves, I think John is saying. So first off, the idea that Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? There's there's way more than I could unpack in the next 60 seconds here. But but briefly, it's, it's another way of saying that God anointed Jesus. God selected Jesus. God sent Jesus from heaven to be his representative. 
It entails the idea of Jesus' saving power, that he's the Messiah, that he, he can take that which is broken, sinful, lost, dead, and, and heal it, and save it, and redeem it. It entails the idea that Jesus comes from heaven to earth, and he can show us what heaven is like. He can show us what God the Father is like, because he knows the Father in a way that we don't. So there's a, there's a re- revelation to, to the idea that Jesus is the Christ. And if we deny that Jesus is the Christ, if we deny that Jesus came with the full measure and power of heaven's authority, then we don't have anyone to tell us what God is really like. We don't have anyone to tell us what the Father's heart toward us is really like. We're left to kind of guess and assume and and hope we're making the right assumptions in that relationship. And if we deny that Jesus is the Christ, then we also don't have that advocate, that atoning sacrifice that John spoke about in chapter 2. Right? As, as we come before the full glory and righteousness of God, right? we're, we're on our own. We don't have that presence, that person God has sent to stand beside us and atone for us. So John says we have to believe Jesus is Secondly, we have to believe that he came in flesh. He came as as a full representative, not just of God, but a full representative of our humanity. He came in a body. And that matters because it has implications for our salvation. If Jesus came as a human being exactly like us, if he laid down his life in a human body for people like us, then Jesus has the power to break the curse of sin and death over people like us. He has the the power in his flesh to to take away, to reverse the curse of Eve and Adam as they ushered in in their their rebellion and their sin. Jesus, by being crucified but then resurrected in the flesh, has the power to to ensure us that we also, in our human form, can be eternally redeemed. We can have life eternally in him if we abide in who he is. So John says, any spirit worth listening needs to be clear on who Jesus is. That spirit, that voice, any voice that you are tempted to listen to must confess Jesus is the full representative of who God is to us. He has the the unique ability to reveal who God is to us. He has the unique ability to atone for for who we are, to stand between us. And he has the, the unique ability to fully identify with us as a human being. And this is imperative because our hearts rise up to condemn us. We grow restless in God's presence. Things we say or do, things other people say or do, call that relationship into question. But Jesus has come so that we might know what is true. True about the Father's heart for us. Really briefly, if you look in verses 4 through 6, John warns us that those antichrists, those false voices in our world, serve to confuse, serve to distract, serve to pull us away from
from the centrality of Jesus. Verse 5 says, an antichrist, I mean, sometimes is blatantly set against the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. Sometimes it's just a worldly voice that speaks from within the, the confines of this realm, right? It can only speak from a worldly vantage point, verse 5 says. But we have a spirit that came from heaven to earth and inhabited a human body and form so that it can speak a truth which overcomes the world and the power of sin and death in our world. We know who Jesus is. We know who we are. We know the security we're meant to have as God's children. As you go through the week ahead, let me just leave you with the challenge to notice the voices, maybe external to you, maybe from within your own heart. And hold those voices as they speak about what's true, particularly as they speak about who you are or how, how God sees you. Hold them up to the truth John speaks here. Do they affirm the, the full glory and truth and revelation of Jesus Christ? Do they affirm the full grace and mercy and cleansing and love of God for you? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, there is more in these few verses than, than our minds can fully comprehend. But I trust and pray for your spirit to unveil and to reveal and to apply and to speak them personally to each of our hearts this week. It's in your name we pray.